0: Welcome to the Best of the Left Podcast, with clips today from Le show The Young Turks, Al Franken, Rachel Maddow, and Tom Hartman.
1: Uh, ladies and gentlemen, a, a listener in Wisconsin passes on... Part of the explanation of Wisconsin Public Radio for why this broadcast is no longer on Wisconsin Public Radio. And it's not the cheese. Here it is. Quote, the other problem with the show is it's satirical. Satire makes listeners uncomfortable. They may misunderstand it or, more seriously, get more confused by what they're hearing. This point in particular is really serious because some of these issues involve life and death. So ladies and gentlemen, please don't be confused about life and death. Life is the good one, death is the bad one. And that's not satirical. At the beginning of the
2: broadcast,
1: George W. Bush.
2: The recent arrests that our fellow citizens are now learning about are a stark reminder that this nation is at war with Islamic fascists who will use any means to, to destroy those of us who love freedom. Oh, I love freedom. But let's just uh, scope that down a little bit. The recent arrests are a stark reminder that this nation is at war.
1: That's right. That's how you can tell we're at war. We arrest people not it's not criminal activity we're after if it were we wouldn't be arresting people and the fi- the uh, buried lead department is uh, overflowing this week with two items from the new york times first of all a um, a story whose uh, putative lead was uh, about the number of roadside bombs in iraq rose- rising to the highest monthly total of the war but we'll get to the metrics of the war a little later but here at the bottom of the story, might well be what you might think is the lead. It's it, the, the whole story uh, revolves around a meeting at the White House on Monday where the president heard from uh, some outside scholars, maybe even some experts about the war. Some outside experts who have recently visited the White House said Bush administrations were beginning to plan this is from the New York Times, for the possibility that Iraq's democratically elected government might not survive. Quote, senior administration officials have acknowledged that they are considering alternatives other than democracy, said one military affairs expert, who agreed to speak only on land condition of anonymity, since he knows the difference between life and death. And that's not satirical. Quote, everybody in the administration is being quite circumspect, the expert said, but you can sense their own concern that this is drifting away from democracy wave democracy goodbye ladies and gentlemen the shore is receding and this from another new york times story again a buried lead about a meeting at the white house with critics or experts on the war eric davis again at the bottom of the story a rector's university political science professor discussed the regional upheaval that could follow if Iraq descended into chaos or was allowed to divide along ethnic lines quote I believe that the American people do not fully understand the potential domino effects that the collapse of Iraq into disorder and anarchy would have on the Middle East and the global political system unquote just in time ladies and gentlemen as democracy recedes we've got a domino theory the lord does provide and that's not satirical when
0: i think of all-
3: people seem to
4: find and how they're in a hurry to complicate their minds by chasing after money and dreams that can't come true i'm glad that we are different we've better things to do may others plan their future i'm busy loving you Meant to worry the way that people do and I don't mean to hurry as long as I'm with you We'll take it nice and easy and use my simple plan. You all right, so let's do it. We, we, you know, look, nine I'll minutes, I'm not no sure is enough time to give you all of Senator Inhofe's crazy, crazy comments. There's five different can. areas here. You're not going to believe it. You're not going to believe it. Now, now Jesus is looking at me like, please me, nine minutes will be plenty. No, but not, enough, not. Let's get started. You'll see.
5: First. J.R. just shook his head like, no chance. We're going to have to take this into tomorrow.
4: <laughs> More into a member's only segment. We'll figure it out. Okay, so let's get started. Number one, apparently Iraq is going great. I didn't know that. You probably didn't know that. Thank God, the uh, senator from the senior senator from Oklahoma, Senator Inhofe, uh, sets us straight on it. Number one, he says, "What's happened there is nothing short of a miracle."
5: It's not going great. It's a miracle.
4: He doesn't mean miracle. How badly it's turned out. He means like, like God Himself came down and created the miracle and the blessing of Iraq and how it is now.
5: He says, "So Iraq is a miracle." But the United Nations. (laughs)
4: Oh, that's a disaster. That's point number two. Let me finish up point number one. He says, Iraq has been incredibly successful, and developments there have been nothing short of a miracle. Contrary to most reports, Inhofe said many Iraqis are pleased about the U.S. intervention. Really, Senator Inhofe? Did you talk to them? Now, I know you've gone to Iraq 11 times. Did you ever go outside the green zone? Did you ever grab, do you know Arabic? Did you go outside and grab an Iraqi and say, hey,
5: listen. He probably speaks Arabic, Jim Inhofe. <laughs> yeah, what are the odds that Jim Inhofe speaks speaks Arabic? Uh,
4: it's. I mean, is there a number less than zero? Is that? No. It's zero. It's inconceivable. It's <laughs> Arabic. <laughs> okay, I, unless he knows the words for give me your oil
5: Jill, in Arabic. Jill, I realize this is pointless. Let's try to book Jim Inhofe on the show. It'll go poorly, but if you call him in his office, just ask if he speaks Arabic. Okay. <laughs> you know what I'll do? I'll... I'll I'll pitch the show in Arabic to him. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's good. Like, whoa, we're his people.
4: Assalamu <laughs> alaikum, Senator Inhofe.
5: <laughs> yeah, that's a good hey, point. He doesn't see yeah. All
4: right. All right. So now, Iraq is a miracle, which, by the way, I mean, I, I don't have to tell you what an unbelievably stupid comment that is. But it turns out the disaster is not Iraq. It's the United Nations. Quote, yeah. the United Nations is an absolute disaster. And get this, whose peacekeepers in Africa have been going, quote, going around teaching girls to be prostitutes. Is that right? I didn't know the U.N. was doing that. Huh, interesting.
5: Yeah, that was this, there was a story out of, I can't remember, some U.N. peacekeeping force where a couple of U.N. guys had tried to turn out girls and were charged. <laughs> so the U.N. as an organization is out teaching people to be prostitutes. Yeah. That, by the way, no difference than calling every U.S. soldier a murderer because... Some soldiers have engaged in the murder of Iraqis. No different at all.
4: These guys are absolute wackos. So then he talks about it's because these you know he's one of these religious freaks that believe in Armageddon and there's going to be a world body and the world body is going to fight us and stuff. And he says, well, you know, the U.N. is trying to impose a global
5: tax. Okay, uh. oh, yeah, I got it. Except he's reading the left behind books and he's believing them. Yeah, the other thing is, though,
4: they collect some money from their members because what organization can run without money? Nothing. Every so, member
5: every organization collects dues from its members. That's how you have a membership. That's how you have an organization.
4: Now you can call that a tax, you can call that membership, you can call it anything you like, okay? But so what? Okay so okay. Global tax. Ooh. What do you want us to do? Okay, so that's it. We're not going to pay the United Nations. Nobody should pay the global tax of the United Nations because they're teaching every all the girls across the country, across the world, to be prostitutes. See, the thing is, Senator Inhofe and his kind hate the United Nations. They hate it when countries work together. What they want is utter chaos throughout the world. For them, the Look, ideal is
5: Iraq. I don't think that. I don't know that they want utter chaos throughout the world. They don't want. Anything, in any way, infringing in any capacity on what the United States can do anywhere it wants to do.
4: No, the, but it's beyond but I mean, that. No, it's it beyond is. that. They hate the U.N. because of these crazy left-behind books they've read.
5: That's, no, that's also true. There's no question that's also true. And, I mean, and if it's, it doesn't matter. They'd rather have chaos than the United Nations. That is unquestionably true. It's not even uh, – to me, you haven't even gotten to the worst thing you said. All right. There's, there's much more. Let's go to point number three. Uh, he wishes we were back in the cold war this is what this is what got me most this is just utter stupidity this just shows a lack of understanding of the world that we live in we said then this is a quote then we had a powerful opponent in the soviet
4: union they were predictable we knew what they had this is not predictable
5: it is a it is a lack of a strength of character to be more afraid of the unpredictable than to be afraid of the known even if you know the known, could obliterate your entire country.
3: And beyond that, all this isn't all that unpredictable. I mean, you guys predicted half of the stuff that has happened
5: over the last three years. Well, uh, well, that, I would argue 85% at least. I would argue less than that, but I don't, it doesn't matter what we predicted. But I'm saying, I mean, very smart people have
3: predicted... What is going to happen in this sure. war on terror?
5: No, no, that's definitely right. That's definitely true. I think what he's... Re- you're right, Joe. I think I what know, he's referring like roadside to...
3: roadside scary bombing... Th- right, right. He is, oh,
5: they're coming to get us. I don't know when they're going to come, can they're gonna come yeah, get us. Yeah, that was predictable, those scary roadside bombing things. How is the possibility that they may... That, that there could be another terrorist attack, and let's say that it's terrifyingly frightening and it's airplanes again. How is that worse for us than the very real possibility... That we could be wiped off the face of the map in a nuclear holocaust.
4: Because Inhofe has a tiny, tiny, small mind. And he thinks, I, things I don't know scare me. Right? I, you know, my preacher told me about the Left Behind series where the, where the U.N. was going to take over. That I understand. I understand black and white. I understand that white are good and black is bad. And I understand evil and good. But there's things I can't predict. They scare
5: me. And as soon as I learn how to read, I'm going to buy those books. <laughs> So, of course, he's more scared by that, but it's a
4: ridiculous comment. He's try- trying to justify uh, this whole idea of that we have to do, we'll get rid of our Constitution because what, the fight against terror is worse than the fight against the Soviet Union or the Nazis or anyone else. Point number four, everybody's complaining, hey, conservatives have lost their way because they're not even really conservative anymore because they're spending money like drunken sailors. Well... It turns out Senator Inhofe's in favor of that. He says that b- bridge to nowhere, the, that spending that we're going to spend $320 million on in Alaska to get the 50 people that nobody wants?
5: Ketchikan, Alaska, bridge to where 50 people live. He says,
4: great idea. Yeah. <laughs> He says, yeah, even the other senator from Oklahoma, Tom Coburn, is against it. Inhofe's the only senator other than Ted Stevens in Alaska who's still for this project. He's like, oh, it's
5: great, yeah, let's spend. He said the $320 million bridge to nowhere, uh, the bridge in Alaska to 50 people, is one of the few examples of something that works in Washington. (laughs) Unbelievable. Okay, but there are so many Republicans criticizing the bridge to nowhere. Almost all of them, except for Ted
4: Stevens, who actually got it authorized, this guy has no shame, but anyway, the last part of it, if this wasn't all psychotic enough, puts it over the top. We know he's against global warming, we know he doesn't believe it, we know he thinks he thinks it's a myth, So he says all that stuff again. he says, I don't really, you know, and if it is true, it's definitely not caused by humans but here's the part that got me. He reiterated according this is the Tulsa paper by the way the Tulsa World he reiterated his belief that global warming is largely a front for international economic movements he crazy He's crazy. He's a crazy this person. is the kind of person that believes like in the elders of Zion and the Council of well, Zion and that's the, true. That's uh, true, the Well that one Zion. is true right yeah. And the Illuminati and the people controlling the world. They made up global
5: warming. I heard. I heard. It's, it's just an a front international in- economic front. A front for international economic movements, and then he says, I see this, I see this, I know it's true. I see international economic movements. <laughs> The dude is crazy. Yeah, he's a crazy person, and he's a United States Senator, one of the hundred best jobs in the country. <laughs> the good people of Oklahoma. You've you gotta are, get rid of him. You were so underrepresented in Oklahoma. This is
4: embarrassing. This guy's worse than Bush. He's gotta go. He's dumber than George Bush. Absolutely. Congratulations, one of the few and proud.
6: I've watched uh, I, I, I actually watched some of the president's speech and then read the transcript and then and pulled some stuff from the I transcript. I think
7: that is oh oh perfectly allowed yeah yeah you don't need to see the whole thing
6: but if you read the transcript so here he is and uh, he's talking he's he's asked a question about isn't Tehran, uh, Tehran's influence in the region growing which it most certainly is and um, and then he'll he'll tie together uh, I mean, obviously, there's a tie between iran and and Hezbollah, but then he ties together gaza and and uh, Hamas and Iraq and the whole deal and there are ways that things are connected, but not the way he's talking about. Let's play this
7: uh, Iran has indicated um, that it will defy the u n on nuclear enrichment. Uh, It's been holding military exercises,
2: sending weapons and money to Hezbollah. Is it Tehran's influence in the region growing, despite your efforts to curb it? Mm. You know, the the final history in the region has yet to be written. And what's very interesting about the violence in uh, Lebanon and the violence in Iraq and the violence... In Gaza uh, is this these are all groups of terrorists who are trying to stop the advance of democracy they're trying to thwart the will of millions who simply want a, a normal hopeful life that's what we're seeing
6: Okay, uh, I think what poses the most danger to the region is President Bush's oversimplification of the region. (laughs) Uh, Gaza, Lebanon, and Iraq, the only thing they really have in common is that what's going on is is actually, in a way, reflecting the aspirations of of the people there. And Hezbollah was elected. We were very proud of that. uh, Hamas was elected in Gaza, right? We were really proud of that. Uh, When the Iraqis voted, they voted totally along partisan lines, I mean, uh, uh, as sectarian lines. And, you know, what we, like Valley Nasser is basically saying that there's the, the, People in the Middle East look at democracy and government as a different thing. They look at it as the balancing between the influence of groups. And so when the Iraqis went to the polls, they were doing it. The Sunnis voted for Sunnis. The Shias voted for Shias. And the Kurds voted for Kurds. And that's the arrangement. And then they try to figure out the arrangement. Some of the violence there is literally about working out that arrangement. And, you know, we went after uh, the uh, Ahmadi Army death squad a couple weeks ago, and Maliki, the prime minister of Iraq, criticized us, attacked us for that. And they did a, a huge demonstration against us and Israel there. This, this guy's got it totally wrong. Uh, and what's most dangerous is him. In a way, I mean, look, uh, obviously these, he's created these terrorists. If you say that Iraq is, uh, you know, we can't leave Iraq now because it is uh, going to be a breeding ground for, for terrorists. We created that. These These are awful people, the terrorists. Saddam's an awful guy, glad he's gone, but there's a number of things. One, if we hadn't done anything, Anbar province wouldn't have al-Qaeda in it. He had nothing to do with al-Qaeda, Saddam, which the president basically admitted yesterday. Um, Let's keep going on this. Um, Here's something really interesting, because... Uh, I've been reading Tom Ricks' book, uh, Fiasco, and I'm almost done with it. And basically what he's saying is that we've never had a strategy there. We've always that Tommy Franks just was bad at strategy and was a tactician. And not only that, but made terrible tactical (laughs) mistakes in addition to not having an overall strategy. And here is the president basically saying, we're going to do, uh, it's going to be uh, stay the course. But he doesn't have a new strategy. The strategy is the overarching plan. And he he's, uh, he, listen to this.
2: Mr. President, I'd like to go back to Iraq. You have continually cited
7: the elections. The new government has progress in Iraq, and yet the violence has gotten worse in certain areas. You have to go to Baghdad again. Is it not time for a new strategy? And if not,
2: why not? Uh, You know, Martha, you've covered the Pentagon. You know that the Pentagon is constantly adjusting tactics because they have the flexibility from the White House to do so. I'm talking about strategy. The strategy is to help the Iraqi people achieve their objectives and their dreams, which is a democratic society. That's the strategy. The tactics. Now, either you say, yes, it's important we stay there and get it done, or we leave. We're not leaving so long as I'm the president. That would be a huge mistake.
6: Okay, now listen to that. That's not a strategy. The strategy is to help the Iraqi people achieve their objectives and their dreams. That's not a strategy. That's a goal. It's not a strategy. And then he says, the tactics, now either you say yes, it's important that we stay there and get it done, or we leave. Those aren't tactics. <laughs> That's a strategy. <laughs> it's just stay there or leave. Uh, part of what what what's done wrong with this war is that we've had no strategy going in. We invaded the country with too small a force we had no strategy for what would happen after we toppled the regime we thought that you cut off the head of the regime that it, the the place would automatically that the, 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 the default in iraq would be democracy and and that's because they knew nothing about iraq the president knew nothing he was too lazy to look and to do the reading Colin Powell said, if you break it, you own it. The president took that enormous responsibility and did nothing.
7: Can we just talk about this sort of uh, greeting card sentiment that seems to be coming up a lot, The uh, this, where this is about people's dreams and about people uh, fulfilling their their aspirations. Um, and uh, the, the truth is that that what... What Hezbollah and Hamas are, are, have done for, to achieve popularity is, oppose, is, is conduct their, their, their business and their dealings with ordinary people with scrupulous integrity. Uh, that's not to say that they're not disgusting and that it wouldn't be, be better to, uh, you know, to, to attack them and destroy them. But uh, a lot of times when people vote, you know, Hamas did not get a majority of the, of the uh uh, Palestinian vote, but it got a plurality because it stood for good government. It stood against the corruption of the Palestinian Authority. Of Fatah. Yeah, Hezbollah. Uh, you know, in addition to their, you know, uh, appalling, horrible, disgraceful, despicable things that they do, also conducts a sort of elaborate social service network that provides things that the government can't. And. You know, so these are our institutions that actually are addressing people's needs, are addressing people's aspirations, are helping them fulfill their dreams, and dealing with them requires a kind of a sophistication and a willingness to kind of wade in a little bit deeper than Bush has been willing to do before. Because you know, it's easier to say the final history in the region has yet to be written, which will will always be true for from now to infinity, <laughs>
6: <laughs> unless we have a really awful, yeah. Unless Armageddon is coming, and in which case, the final history, final history also just won't be months written. away. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a really good point, Billy. And, uh, I mean, it, it, Hezbollah is, I mean, the aspirations of the Palestinian people is... The destruction of Israel and you have your dreams. Your dreams.
7: Your dream lands, or your dream, you know, gets gets a little smaller uh, as the situation gets more violent. Your dream can be surviving next week. You know, that's the way it is for a lot we, of people. We have certainly Baghdad. Uh, you know, the idea of well, uh, you know the, the the dream that that Bush is suggesting now, I think, seems so unrealistic for most Iraqis that that it's irrelevant. The dream for, for a lot of people is security. The dream for a lot of people is being able to go about their daily business.
3: I've got a friend he's a
1: purebred killing machine. He said he's waited his whole damn life for this. I knew him well when he was 17. Now
3: he's a man, he'll be dead by Christmas and so... The president on Monday, as you know, as we've been continually talking about, uh, got really mad and uh, basically exploded with this unexpected admission on Monday uh, that U.S. troops will not leave Iraq while he is in office.
2: Either you say, yes, it's important we stay there and get it done, or we leave. We're not leaving so long as I'm the president. That would be a huge mistake.
3: We're not leaving so long as I'm the president. Joseph Galloway is a former senior military correspondent with Knight Ritter Newspapers. He's also the co-author with Harold Moore of We Were Soldiers Once and Young. He's one of my favorite reporters and fulminators on uh, on military issues. Uh, Joseph Galloway joins us on the phone from Colorado this morning. Mr. Galloway, thank you for joining
8: us. Uh, good morning, Rachel.
3: What was your reaction to the president's uh, speech on Monday and blurting out that uh, troops aren't coming home before he's out of office?
8: Well, I thought it was most akin to a declaration of bankruptcy. Why? Bankruptcy of policy, bankruptcy of ideas. Uh, more stay the course when everybody pretty much agrees, including a lot of Republicans, that the course we are owned and have been owned for three and a half years in Iraq is wrong. Admittedly, uh, uh, this administration and uh, Mr. Bush has marched us out into the swamps up to our necks, and we're in a position where we're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. But uh, when you say something like that, you're, you're sending a message to the military that. Uh, even though what we're doing isn't succeeding we're going to keep doing it because i don't know anything else to do so there we are it's the lone gunfighter outside the saloon
3: there was some, that's why his his evident state of mind that, that literally the tone in his voice seems uh, more important to me than it, I, I'm not one of these people who psychologically parses people all that all that much. But it seems important here because he seemed like he was just in an angry kind of petulant personally harried way saying i'm not leaving i'm not leaving as if it's him who's there actually you know putting his boots on the ground and having to fight it it seems like you know we don't really have a strategy but i know that i'm not backing down no matter what and the consequences be damned somebody else have to clean up clean up after me uh when i'm gone that's why and, to me it's and, so unsettling
8: and, and the other uh overwhelming message was uh we Republicans, as we go into the uh, fall congressional midterm elections, are going to blame it all on the Democrats.
3: Because they want to cut and run,
8: right? They want to cut and run. They want to do something different. And something different is clearly what's needed. I don't know how many of your readers have read Tom Ricks' new book, Fiasco, America's Adventure, Military Adventure in Iraq.
3: Yeah, we had him on the show to talk about it. It's an incredible book.
8: Oh, it's a great book. And it lays it all out point by point how we went wrong and and what needs doing. And we're doing none of it. And it it is so frustrating to anyone who has spent time in the military or with the military. It it just, you know, you sit here and you analyze it and, and you end up uh, more depressed than George Bush.
3: What do you think about the uh, announcement from the Marine Corps yesterday that they're going to be calling up their uh, Individual Ready Reserve? First time they have done that since the initial invasion.
8: Uh, Well, it's something the Army did a long time ago, several years back. Mm -hmm. And and it is symptomatic of the breaking of our military, the overuse, the continued back-to-back deployments. You've got some Marines who have done three or four now. Uh, deployments to Iraq to the worst sort of combat in Anbar Province, Fallujah, Al Asad, uh, Ramadi—these these places where they are just ground up in a meat grinder—and uh, it, it's 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 very worrisome. The Army is is uh, has taken all of the measures that it can to scrape up. Everything it can. Now it's the Marines' turn.
3: Do you have any any hope for uh, a Democratic Congress if if the Democrats take back Congress in November, Uh, turning around the the, some of what you've really chronicled in your recent columns about kind of the the mistreatment, the breaking of the military by this administration's policies? Do you feel like a Democratic Congress could turn any of that around?
8: Well, you know, uh, if even one House turns over to the Democrats. I hope that they will have sat down in advance lined up their committee chairs, uh, lined up uh, the investigations they wish to undertake, prepared the list of subpoenas, and for the first time in in five-plus years, the administration will be forced to come before uh, a hostile committee and forced to answer questions they've not been questioned they 've not there have been no oversight. Uh, Congress under the Republicans uh, since the Bush administration came in, has just abdicated all responsibility mm-hmm. and 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 in the details of that lies the destruction of our military.
3: one of the other things that you have written about, I think very powerfully is how um, the president has decided no longer to really consult the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or to consult the, the Chiefs of Staff. Generally, instead, he's getting all his military advice from Donald Rumsfeld. Donald Rumsfeld, in turn, is not taking advice from the people who have real experience fighting wars. Uh, has been kind of dismissing the, 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 the hard-won experience of the people who have, who have gone before him. I mean, you've been, you've been covering the military for 41 years. Could, can you compare or do you have do you have a comparison in mind between Rumsfeld and Robert McNamara during Vietnam?
8: Oh, you know, it's something that, that bothers me deeply because I see so many parallels between those two gentlemen. Mm. Arrogance, ignorance, and they're in charge. You know, those are that's a combination that's almost always fatal to someone. Usually not them, but someone. Yeah. Someone wearing uniforms. Uh, I never thought... I would live long enough to be able to say that the United States of America has a Secretary of Defense who, by comparison, makes the aptly named Robert Strange McNamara look good by comparison.
3: Yeah. Do you think that he's going to – there's been some rumors out there this week that Bush is looking for a uh, replacement. Have you heard anything like that?
8: I haven't heard that, but I've heard it ever since uh, the whole thing started. I don't believe Bush will do a single thing to move Rumsfeld off the dime. He has uh, essentially abdicated uh, control of the war to Rumsfeld and so that he can think about other things. I don't know what. Uh, and, and doesn't really dare replace him. Who's he going to trust his legacy to? So. Although the guy who's he's trusted it to is uh, surely putting him in the hole.
3: Joseph Galloway, thanks for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to talk with you. I appreciate it.
8: Uh, good to talk to you, Rachel.
3: Joseph Galloway is a former senior military correspondent for Knight Ridder Newspapers. He's a columnist. He's a co-author of the classic We Were Soldiers Once and Young. Norman Schwarzkopf um, calls Joseph Galloway the finest combat correspondent of our generation and calls him a soldier's reporter, a soldier's friend. And in the same way that when Jack Murtha spoke out against the war it resonated so much because of what he had meant to the military before speaking out. Joseph Galloway's recent anger and passion in his columns about what this administration has done to break the military, breaking the Army, breaking the Marine Corps, leaving them with equipment worn out in a world a 100 times more dangerous than it was before this administration coming into power. Hearing that kind of passion uh, from somebody like Joseph Galloway with the experience that he's had uh, is, is is all the more powerful. We've put a link to his recent columns at mattoonline.com. A recommended reading from me.
9: Robert Pape wrote this book called Dying to Win, the Strategic Logic of Suicide Terrorism. And some interesting points that he makes in the book. He says, and I'm quoting from his book, this is from page four, he says, The data show that there is little connection between suicide terrorism and Islamic fundamentalism, or any of the world's religions. Rather, what nearly all suicide terrorist attacks have in common is a specific secular and strategic goal to compel modern democracies to withdraw military forces from territory that the terrorists consider to be their homeland. you get this? He looked at uh, a database of every suicide bombing and attack around the globe from 1980 through 2003. 315 attacks and all this is from page 3. And on page 16, he says, as shown in table one, the explicitly anti religious Tamil tigers have committed 76 of the 315 suicide attacks, more than any group. He debunks the myth that suicide terrorists are wackos and insane people. He says in general, suicide attackers are rarely socially isolated, clinically insane, or economically destitute individuals, but are most often educated, socially integrated, and highly capable people who could have a, who could be expected to have had, have had a good future. They're generally more they're generally better educated than average and are from working or middle classes. On page 216, he says they resemble the kind of politically conscious individuals who might join a grassroots movement more than they do wayward adolescents or religious fanatics. So, you know, number one, it all has to do, so much of this has to do with the feeling of these guys are occupying our country. Which is what bin Laden said to us back in 96 when he said he was going to attack us, that if we didn't get our troops out of Saudi Arabia, out of the, uh, out of the bin Sultan Air Force Base there, where we put them in 1991 to use as a staging ground for the, for the attack against Iran, Iraq in Kuwait, so that we could replace the regime of Saddam Hussein with the dictatorship of uh, the, the inherited dictatorship, but friendly to us, of the Emir of Kuwait. He said, if you don't take those troops out of Saudi Arabia where they are defiling the holy land, I'm going to take you out. That was the basis of the whole thing. Well, how is how is this that history is repeating itself? Back in 1972, President Richard Nixon returned from the Soviet Union with a treaty worked out by Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. This was the beginning of a process that Kissinger referred to as detente. Remember this? On June 1st, 1972, Nixon gave a speech in which he said, And I quote, last Friday in Moscow, we witnessed the beginning of the end of that era, which began in 1945. With this step, we have enhanced the security of both nations. We have begun to reduce the level of fear by reducing the causes of fear for our two peoples and for all peoples in the world. Richard Nixon. June 1st, 1972, declaring the era of fear was over because he had worked out to taunt with the Soviet Union. Now, that was intolerable to people who were making money on fear. Nixon left amid scandal, and Jerry Ford comes in, and Ford's Secretary of Defense and his Chief of Staff, Secretary of Defense, a guy by the name of Don Rumsfeld, Jerry Ford's Chief of Staff, a guy by the name of Dick Cheney, believed just right up front, it was intolerable that Americans might no longer be bound by, by fear. Without fear, how could they be manipulated? Rumsfeld and Cheney began a concerted effort, first secretly and then openly, to undermine Nixon's treaty for peace and to rebuild the state of fear and thus reinstate the Cold War. These two men, 1974 Defense Secretary Don Rumsfeld and Ford, Jerry Ford Chief of Staff Dick Cheney, did this by claiming that the Soviets had secret weapons of mass destruction that even the president didn't know about, that the CIA didn't know about, that nobody but them knew about. And they said because of these secret weapons of mass destruction that the Soviet Union had in 1974, the U.S. must redirect billions of dollars away from domestic programs that Richard Nixon had actually put in place and instead give the money to defense contractors for whom these two men would one day work. As Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld explained to the United States in 1976, the Soviet Union has been busy. They've been busy in terms of their level of effort. They've been busy in terms of the actual weapons they've been producing. They've been busy in terms of expanding production rate. They've been busy in terms of expanding their institutional capacity to produce additional weapons at additional rates. They've been busy in terms of expanding their capability to increasingly improve the sophistication of those weapons. Year after year after year, they've been demonstrating that they have steadiness of purpose. They're purposeful about what they're doing. End of quote. The CIA strongly disagreed. They called Rumsfeld's position a complete fiction. They pointed out that the Soviet Union was, at that time, in 1974, in the process of disintegrating from within. They were barely able to feed their own people, and within a couple of decades, if you simply left the Soviet Union alone, it would collapse under its own weight. But Rumsfeld and Cheney wanted Americans to believe there was something nefarious going on, something we should be very afraid of, And so they created a commission, and they put their old friend Paul Wolfowitz in charge of it. It was called Team B. And sure enough, Wolfowitz's group, Team B, came to the conclusion that the Soviets had developed several terrifying new weapons of mass destruction, featuring a nuclear-armed submarine fleet that used a sonar system that didn't depend on sound and was therefore undetectable with our current technology. Now, back in 1977, when they were promoting this myth as a way of amping up defense spending, Dr. Ann Kahn, who was the head of the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency at that time, 1977, said, and I quote, they couldn't say that the Soviets had acoustic means of picking up American submarines because they couldn't find it. So they said, well, maybe they have a non-acoustic means of making our submarine fleet vulnerable. But there was no evidence they had a non-acoustic system. They're saying... We can't find evidence that they're doing it the way everyone thinks they're doing it, so they must be doing it a different way. We don't know what that different way is, but they must be doing it. Even though there's no evidence. They said it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, it just means we haven't found it. End of quote. The BBC did a documentary on this. It's called uh, The Power of Nightmares. Adam Curtis. And the documentary says... What Team B accused the CIA of missing was a hidden and sinister reality in the Soviet Union. Not only were there many secret weapons the CIA hadn't found, but, they were, but the CIA was wrong about many of those they could observe, such as the Soviet air defenses. Now, the CIA were convinced that these were in a state of collapse, reflecting the growing economic chaos in the Soviet Union. But Team B, Paul Wilfowitz's commission, working with Rumsfeld and Cheney out of the Ford White House, Team B said that there was actually, this was actually a cunning deception by the Soviet regime. They were just pretending to be in economic distress. The air defense system worked perfectly. Was there evidence? No. The only evidence they could produce to prove this was the official Soviet training manual, which proudly asserted that their air defense system was fully integrated and, fu- and functioned flawlessly. The CIA looked at this and said, you guys, you're Wolfowitz, you're in a fantasy world. But as Melvin Goodman, the head of the CIA's Office of Soviet Affairs in 1976, from 76 all the way through 87, told the BBC, quote, Rumsfeld won that very intense, intense political battle that was waged in Washington in 1975 and 1976. Now, as part of that battle, Rumsfeld and others, people such as Paul Wolfowitz, wanted to get into the CIA, and their mission was to create a much more severe view of the Soviet Union, Soviet intentions, Soviet views about fighting and winning a nuclear war. We have seen this movie before. I, I would submit to you that w- what these guys are doing in amping up a war in Iran is the same thing that they were doing in the 1970s with regard to the Soviet Union, trying to terrify us so that the defense industry can make billions, trillions. And now they've got Chris, Chris Matthews on their side. Here he is. He's saying, the conservatives, yeah, they're right about this stuff. You know, don't it. Gotta... But
7: you know, I keep hearing from people on the right, Robert Kagan and, and Bill Crystal, the guys who are most hawkish and most articulate in making their case, and they may be right. They may be right. That if at the end of this administration, this this uh, uh, this hawkish administration that was willing to go into Iraq and Afghanistan, if this president's not not going to knock out those facilities, no future president is likely to do it, we'll be stuck with a nuclear-armed Iran, which can rant and rave around that, that region, threatening Israel, Saudi, and everybody else, and we'll be stuck with it. So their argument is, try the diplomatic route, try everything, but in the end, we have to hit them.
9: Yeah, maybe just before the 2006 elections, or maybe just before the 2008 elections, if the Democrats don't take the House and Senate in 2006 we got to hit him to How to Win Hearts and Minds, 101. I've been talking to a friend of mine, talking, talking. He says making money's just a waste of time. He's a lazy gent, don't pay no rent. He's no. all better out of shape from living in a tent. It's hard to hear what he has to say. Whoa, because everyone
4: around me is more daddy give me give me some
9: more more daddy give me some give me some me
4: some now let's do uh, the question of they say well you know is that's really iraqis versus iraqis rather than al qaeda like you keep talking about i think it's a very good question let's see how president bush answers that question
2: when you talked today about the violence in Baghdad, first you mentioned extremists, radicals, and then Al-Qaeda. It seems that Al-Qaeda and foreign fighters are much less of a problem there and that it really is Iraqi versus Iraqi. And when we heard about your meeting the other day with experts and so forth, some of the reporting out of that said you were frustrated, you were surprised, and your spokesman said, nope, you're determined. But Frustration seems like a very real emotion. Why wouldn't you be frustrated, sir? Mm. Uh, what's happened? Mm. Uh, I, I I'm not. I do remember the meeting. I don't remember Can you being stop it surprised. For one side, I'm not sure.
5: I don't know who the reporter is, but I hate that. And I, I hate to. First of all, I hate that my hair's sticking up. Um, but I hate that she asked a good question mm-hmm. and then stuck a terrible question and a meaningless question, which we'll get an okay answer on to, on top of it so that he never has to answer really the first question. Yeah, she should have stopped halfway way. Stopped through. with Al-Qaeda foreign fighters. It's, it's sectarian violence among Iraqis, not Al-Qaeda. And then she goes in... Are you determined or frustrated? I don't care. And, and no one should really care about whether the president thinks he's determined or frustrated or an interesting combination of the two. And, of course, he's going to say determined. Yeah. It's <laughs> Gee, a, I wonder how he's going to And I don't even understand how they relate. Now, as it happens, Bush actually kind of answers her first question anyway, as you'll see. But it, it's just a little small. And,
4: and before we go on, I love the – he does it every time, and I love it every time when he goes, hmm. <laughs> They're asking the question, Hmm.
5: Yeah, all right. hmm, is what George Bush says to an easy question that he wants to be made make it seem as if it's hard. Right.
4: Oh, uh, is my uh, are my eyes uh, green or uh, hmm. well, brown? That's an interesting question. <laughs> okay.
2: Anyway, here we go. I do remember the meeting. I don't remember being surprised. I'm not sure what they meant by that about the lack of gratitude among the Iraqi people. Oh, uh, no, I think uh, yeah. Uh, uh, first of all, for the first part of your question. Um. You know, if you look back at the words of Zarqawi before he was brought to justice, he made it clear that the, in- the intent of uh, their tactics in Iraq was to create uh, civil strife.
4: Okay, first of all, yeah, I got it. Okay, that was that dude's intent. But. What is the situation now? Okay? And furthermore, apparently either he never got, gets this or he continues to mislead the American people about it. The Zarqawi was always a small part of the insurgency, and the Pentagon has given numbers on it. They've given numbers from, ranging from 5 to 10% of the insurgency were these quote-unquote al-Qaeda types, as Bush would say, or actually as Cheney would say, or these group of extremist folks, as Bush would say. The rest of it was Sunnis and Shiites fighting. And here he goes back to the same old canard. That guy who's the long dead Zarqawi, yeah, he said that he was Al-Qaeda and wanted to... I know, that's what he said. What about the 95% that don't say that? They say, no, I'm going after the Shi'a and I'm going after the Sunnis. That part he doesn't answer. Now he comes back
2: and answers the frustrated question. Iraq will succeed because the Iraqis will see to it. That they succeed. And our job is to help them succeed. That's our job. Our job is to help their forces be better equipped, to help their police be able to deal with these extremists, uh, and to help their government succeed. Are
5: you frustrated, sir? Frustrated? Uh, shut Sometimes
2: up. I'm frustrated, rarely surprised. Uh, sometimes I'm happy.
5: You know, this is. This is a, Bush uh, says sometimes he's frustrated. The war is a time of joy. No, no,
4: we got to hear that again. Yeah, a, that
5: last part. War is not a time of joy. It's, uh, But war is not a time of joy.
2: Ooh. These aren't joyous times. Oh. These, oh. these are challenging times. And they're difficult times. And they're straining the, the psyche of our country. I understand that. <laughs> I
4: love when, again, when he's so proud of understanding something. Are we, this country's being tried. I understand that. Oh, congratulations. Pat on the back. I love that. Sometimes I'm frustrated. Sometimes I'm happy. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Jesus Christ okay well I'm just gonna keep on rolling here (laughs) let's go to why we went to Iraq in the first place here's another brilliant uh,
2: answer from your press Uh, was uh, the main reason we went into Iraq at the time was we thought he had weapons of mass destruction It turns out he didn't but he had the capacity to make weapons of mass destruction but I also talked about the human suffering in Iraq and I also talked the need to advance a freedom agenda and so my question, my answer to your question is, is that imagine a world in which Saddam Hussein was there, stirring up even more trouble in a part of the world that uh, had so much resentment and so much hatred that, three, that, that people came and killed 3,000 of our citizens. Yep, nope, it right there. You know, I, I've heard this theory about, you know, everything was just fine until we arrived and, then, you know, kind of, the, the, you know, stir up the hornet's nest theory.
5: It just just doesn't hold water as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, people are always saying that Iraq was just fine until we got there. Everyone's making that argument.
4: No, and that, hey, look, 9-11 happened before Iraq. This is now a typical, like, conservatives mistake that for actual thought. Like, they they get proud when they say that. (laughs) Isn't that clever? Yeah, I got it, dude. The question is, did you make it worse or did you make it better? Also, it's not, Nobody says there was no terrorism, there was no al-Qaeda before Iraq. We're saying al-Qaeda wasn't in Iraq. And by going to Iraq, you made it worse. Look at what the U.S. intelligence officials are saying uh, off
5: the record. They're saying to Newsweek,
4: we tripled the size of al-Qaeda when we went into Iraq.
5: 84% of sort of, uh, of uh, across the spectrum of uh, political affiliation, moderate, conservative, uh, liberal, uh, of people who spend their lives working in foreign policy saying that we're we're less safe now because we invaded Iraq. But also, you know, in, a, in one of the answers we're going to have shortly from the president, uh, he's going to talk about how there's no connection to 9/11 and then like Lynn Cheney does when she goes around the, the Dick Cheney's wife and and argues that neither the president or the vice president have ever said it, she says um, but he just did it right there. He, he said, just what, said it. What if we had so we, what if we had uh, um, uh, George uh, uh, Saddam Hussein still in a region of the world stirring things up So much so that uh, there was so much hatred that it killed 3,000 Americans. Saddam Hussein wasn't stirring anybody up to kill any Americans. Not one. Region of the world, that's the same argument that uh, Dick Cheney used when he
4: went on to meet the press. Uh, Well, Iraq was the geographic base from which these 9-11 people attacked. No, they weren't. That's like saying, well, China is in the region of the world where uh, the Pearl Harbor attackers came from, so we attacked China. But it
5: wasn't China. It was Japan. And in this case, it wasn't Iraq. It was Al-Qaeda. Back separatists in uh, Spain. So we invaded England. <laughs> it's the same. It's exactly the same. It's that same region. Yeah. Same, same region. Europe.
4: You know, hey, look, uh, t- it turned out uh, Germany attacked Germany attacked us in World War I, so we hit France and we hit them hard. Yeah. Uh, they're the,
5: the German the same. This, 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 this German anti-Americanism was coming
4: from the same region. Not only is it preposterously wrong and yeah. purposely misleading, it's also, by the way, racist. Yeah, it's totally racist. You know, say, oh, well, you know, they're all Muslims, and America's not going to be able to Look, tell the difference our, anyway.
5: Our whole strategy in this, uh, the Bush administration's whole strategy regarding selling the war to Iraq, you know, I mean, the fact is, the president, and mainly the vice president, uh, but the president, on the you know when he said an, an ally of Al Qaeda has been defeated, when he said it uh, in May of 2003 aboard the Abraham Lincoln, uh, he said it. But Dick, Dick Cheney mainly said it. They 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 shouldn't have even come close. Dick Cheney shouldn't have done what his pretty well established, pretty well confirmed, which he did on three or four times uh, about the connection. They didn't need to because what their main strategy was, what their Rovian strategy was, was look, we're just gonna. People will assume it. We're not going to deny it, and they'll assume it because they're all Arabs. And so, and, and it's not just that they're all Arabs. We don't, it's not like we have to sell that, that uh, King Abdullah in Jordan was. They're all bad Arabs. This is an Arab who doesn't like us. So, uh, um, um, Osama bin Laden doesn't like us, and we've already been to war with Saddam Hussein. Americans know they're two bad guys. They will assume by saying all we have to say is the war on terror is big, and we've got to go into Iraq next. And they will assume it, and Americans did.
4: All right, so let's play uh, Bush's denial now, later in the press conference about 9-11. Yeah, I never said there was, uh, Iraq was connected to 9-11. Here it is, President Bush, today.
2: The terrorists attacked us and killed 3,000 of our citizens before we started the Freedom Agenda in the Middle East. They were... Uh-huh. What did Iraq have to do with what? The attack upon the World Trade Center. Nothing, except for it's part of. And nobody's ever suggested in this administration that Saddam Hussein ordered the attack. Iraq was a uh, Iraq. The 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 lesson of September 11th is take threats before they fully materialize. Ken, nobody's ever suggested that the attacks of September the 11th uh, were ordered by Iraq. I have suggested, however, that resentment. And uh, the lack of hope uh, creates the breeding grounds for terrorists who are willing to use suiciders to kill to achieve an objective. I have made that case. And one way to defeat that, uh, you know, the, uh, defeat resentment is with hope. And the best way to do hope is through a form of government. Now, I said going into Iraq, we got to take these threats seriously before they fully materialize. I saw a threat. I fully believe it was the right decision to remove Saddam Hussein, and I fully believe the world is better off without him. Now the question is, how do we succeed in Iraq? And you don't succeed by leaving before the mission is complete, like some in this political process are suggesting.
4: Well, I have a number of things to say about that. First of all, he said, I wanted to attack before the threat fully materialized. Well... Now it's fully materialized, Yeah, <laughs> thanks to your attack, rather ironic.
5: Better attack again.
4: <laughs> okay. And he says, well, you know, uh, yeah, they didn't have anything to do with 9-11, but I wanted to attack the resentment uh, in the Middle East. Hmm. Do you think our attack of Iraq has helped the resentment or hurt the resentment only, in the
5: Middle East? Only an imbecile would answer the question. That was one of his dumbest answers ever. I, I, it's not funny. He didn't say anything amusing. He didn't, he didn't goof on the language. But that's a that's a silly person answering that question.
4: You know the answer is bad and embarrassing, like embarrassing when Jesus in the other room, I can see him, starts shaking his head like, oh, yeah, yeah, Like, this guy, this guy we have as our president. Unbelievable. So now he says, uh, No. Oh, but for, by the way, for all you Republicans out there who still think that Iraq and 9-11 are corrected, there it is. Your president just said, no, they're not at all connected, and we never said they were.
5: And, by the way, and he didn't have weapons of mass destruction. He, still, you know.
4: he said that, too. So I don't want to hear that call ever again, okay, for the delusional people who believe like Rick Santorum and... and Peter Hoekstra and say, oh, no, we got the weapons, and, yeah, Iraq and 9-11, were all connected. You just heard the President Bush saying, no, it's not connected, we never found the weapons, and, and we never said they were connected. Now, he the hey, capacity J.R.
5: to make weapons.
4: <laughs> yeah, by the way, he has the capacity to make weapons. You know who also has the capacity to make weapons? Everybody. Every single country on the planet. Because he didn't have a weapons program. He didn't even have a weapons program. What Be- President Bush is saying is he had the capacity to think about a weapons program. Well, so does Papua New Guinea. So does Canada. Okay, so does Sweden. Everybody has the capacity to think about a weapons program. It's the most preposterous point ever. So, now, he said very clearly there, we never suggested that 9-11 and Iraq were connected. JR, go back to his previous answer. Just play his previous
2: answer. Uh, was uh, the main reason we went into Iraq at the time was we thought he had weapons of mass destruction. It turns out he didn't, but he had the capacity to make weapons of mass destruction. But I also talked about the human suffering in Iraq, and I also talked the need to advance a freedom agenda. And so my my answer to your question is, is that imagine a world in which Saddam Hussein was there, stirring up even more trouble in a part of the world that... uh, uh, we had so much resentment and so much hatred that, three th- that people came and killed 3,000 of our citizens. Oh, but President now, I, Bush heard... never made that suggestion, did he? He didn't just connect Iraq
4: and Al-Qaeda in the previous answer.
5: Yeah, he did it in the previous answer and then went ahead and said nothing. <laughs> Saddam Hussein stirring up trouble in a region of the world where there is so much hatred that they killed 3,000 of our citizens.
4: Who's they? Who's they? Yeah, they're... Uh, they, they they're not... A, they. They don't have the capacity to be embarrassed at how bad their lies are.
0: Thanks for listening, everybody. So I have a favor to ask, and it's totally simple. I want you to tell me a story, but just to be fair, I'll tell you mine first, and this is how it goes every week or so. By which I mean every week, sometimes every other week. I have an appointment that I go to on Monday evenings. Uh, It's usually, you know, scheduled for anywhere between 7.30 and 8.30. And this appointment takes me about 15 minutes to get there from my house. And just keep in mind, this this is a thing that I like doing i get enjoyment out of it it's not really at all relevant what it actually is and it's nothing weird or sinister um so over the past several weeks or months i've made a bit of a routine out of going to this appointment and and so what i do is you know it's in the evening it's starting to get cool you know it's it's been summertime so it's been hot um but, you know, right in that seven thirty, eight o'clock range, uh, the, the sun has gone down below the horizon, still light outside, but I can roll down the windows and not use the air conditioner and be comfortable, you know, have kind of a warm breeze uh, blowing over me. And like I said, it takes me 15 minutes to get to the appointment and 15 minutes back. And there is one particular weekly podcast that's Almost exactly thirty minutes long, so it's it's the perfect podcast to listen to while making this trip, and it's it's one of my non-political podcasts, and it's just it's just a fun time, and you know it, it kind of oftentimes but not always kind of flows with the mood of this appointment that I go to, and. And so it creates kind of a whole experience for me, you know, from the time I get in the car to to the appointment and coming back, and when I get out of the car, that's a, that's almost exactly when the show ends. And so it, it you know it flows in one big circle, and it just I mean it, it makes my day. I just I love it. It's, it's the simplest thing in the world but it's it's just nice it makes for a nice night I, all right I'm, I'm feeling weird like you're all gonna wonder what it is I, I get a massage that's the thing I, I hesitate in saying that because like you know who gets a massage like every week or every other week it's I, I have a physical job and if I don't get a massage I feel like I'm going to implode or something you know my my shoulders tense up and uh, i'm a wreck so it's it's like it's a matter of survival not you know luxury for me so it just had to clear the air you know if you didn't know what it was you'd think it was even you know something worse than that so so that's what it is you know i i look forward to it every week or, or two have an appointment for a massage. I get in the car, I listen to the show, it's halfway done when I get there, I listen to the last half when I get back, and it's just, it's just a great time. So anyways, the question I have for you is I'd like to hear your story. You know, I put out sometimes five of these a week, not really that many recently, and um, but I just wonder, like, how do you listen to the show, do you actually keep up? If you don't, that's a thousand percent okay, because because um, it's, it's a lot of show, you know, like an almost an hour every day is, is a lot. So, you know, do you catch up? Do you not, or do you keep up? Do you not keep up? You know, do you fall behind and catch up? Do you listen to it at the same time every day? Have you kind of made it a part of your routine? Do you just fit it in whenever you can? Anything like that, just whatever your story is, if, you know... If you don't have a story, tell me you don't have a story. If uh, you know p- people I, I, I've spoken with have, you know they just listen to it on the way to work, and you know if they don't finish it, they listen to it on the way back, or you know I, I've had one person say they listen to it right before bed at night, and you know so whatever it is for you, I'd like to know. I'm I'm interested, and and frankly, I'll I'll be candid. Um, I would like to know because uh, I'm doing this speaking gig coming up soon. I'm going to be talking about the new media and how it functions in people's lives, and and how you know how podcasting has created the ability to you know completely time shift your whole world. So. Nobody listens to anything that they're listening to at the same time as everybody else is listening to it or reading it, for instance, like with blogs. And uh, and so I'm just curious as to what your experience is with this show in particular, and how does it interact with your lives? And um, so it's it's not something that uh, it's going to be a big deal for the show. I won't really bring it up again, but um, but I'm definitely interested in learning how podcasts come into your life because I know how they come into mine and it's almost non-stop all the time. Uh, but uh, but now I'm interested in hearing what you guys have to say. So now with that excessive amount of explaining done, uh, just please go to bestoftheleftpodcast.com and there's a, a link to email me all the way at the bottom of the page uh, or you can just email direct at hippiesympathizer at com. It would be very much appreciated. And that's going to do it for me. Have a good day, afternoon, night, or uh, whatever your experience is. Have a good one, everybody.